at a new temple area in Ezekiel 40 in the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month in the 14th year after the fall of the city on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In visions of God he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose side on the south were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the gate facing east. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod wide and the projecting walls between the alcoves alcoves were five cubits thick and the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. Turn over to 43, Ezekiel 43 from verse 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kiba River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at the high places. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now I let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. 
This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Carl. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at these chapters in Ezekiel, uh, this vision of the temple which he saw, Lord, we pray that you enable us to consider the plan and to take it to heart. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to be able to see all the grandeur uh, of what you showed to Ezekiel uh, and what it meant for your people in Ezekiel's day and what it means for us in our day. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been going through Ezekiel, I keep having the same conversation with people because I'm a, quite a boring person. I tend to uh, just say the same things over and over again. It's not just because uh, I don't know what to say to people. I do it to myself all the time. I have the same conversation with myself every day. But uh, I find it quite fascinating. And the conversation that I keep having is, is that I love the book of Ezekiel because it's a book for the imagination. I keep saying to people, you know what Ezekiel is? It's a book for the imagination. And it is. It's this wonderful kind of picture book which opens our eyes to see the glory of God. And time and again this phrase has come back into my mind and I didn't know where it, where it came from. This phrase, it's a sacrament for the imagination. It sounds a bit strange, but it's just, a, I think, a wonderful description of what Ezekiel is all about. It's kind of a, a gift from God that's meant to stir our hearts and our imaginations, to strengthen our faith. That's what the sacraments are supposed to do, aren't they? They're, they're signs from God to strengthen our faith. And Ezekiel is like that, but for our imaginations. The phrase uh, I discovered comes from a, rev- uh, a commentary on Revelation that I read years ago, uh, and uh, Michael Wilcock Uh, writes in his commentary there about Revelation, but I think this is true of Ezekiel as well. We could do without it, he says. It tells us nothing that we couldn't learn elsewhere in Scripture. But Jesus has given it to us, Revelation, as a sacrament of the imagination to quicken the pulse and set the soul aflame over the gospel which all too often we take for granted. Isn't that a wonderful description? of the purpose of the book of Revelation and the purpose, purpose of Ezekiel, the sacrament of the imagination to quicken the pulse and set the soul aflame over the gospel which all too often we take for granted. So the power of Ezekiel in many ways lies in its ability to stir our imaginations and to open up our hearts to the love and the praise of God, the God and the gospel which all too often we take for granted. Its power lies in its ability to escalate the mundane to things of worship and praise and to be pictures of God's great gospel work. Someone shared with me a few weeks ago after the sermon on the cleansing of the, of the, of the dirty pot the, of the city of Jerusalem. They shared with me that they'll never look at their teacups, their clean teacups, in the same way again. And so it is that Ezekiel opens up the mundane of our lives to be pictures of God's greatness and of God's great gospel plan. And here in these last nine chapters, of chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel, we get the last of Ezekiel's great visions of God's glory. As we come to uh, these chapters, it's helpful to, to kind of understand a few things about them, to kind of orient ourselves to them. 
they're hard chapters to understand and they're understood in lots of different ways. There are lots of uh, different interpretations, I suppose, of them. Probably the most common interpretation of these last chapters is that uh, this temple, this vision that uh, Ezekiel sees, the temple that he sees in this vision, is a temple that will be uh, established before the return of Jesus in uh, Jerusalem. That's a kind of a very common interpretation. Uh, it, it often comes under the rather mystifying title of dispensational premillennialism, but we'll just call it DP, right? It's like DP, awesome. Uh, but, uh, but, but that view is problematic for a whole range of reasons and it's not really, I don't really have time to go into it. But, uh, but I want to make a, a few observations from this text, from this passage that kind of gives us uh, clues, gives us hints, instructions I guess on how we should understand this vision of, Ezekiel, uh, of Ezekiel's temple. The first thing to notice is that these last chapters begin like a vision. So in chapter 40 which Chris read for us in verse 2, in visions God took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He, he was standing in the gateway with a linen cord in his hand. So this is another vision and so it needs to be understood in the same light as all the other visions that Ezekiel has had through the book. Uh, all the other visions that Ezekiel has had through the book have been surreal. Uh, they've you might remember the, uh, the vision in chapter 1 of the likeness of the glory of God. It was like a surrealist painting. There was the wheels within wheels and there was the, there was the sapphire expanse and there was uh, the cherubim who had those four different faces. I mean, nobody reads that and expects that to be a, a kind of a realistic picture, but it's, a, it, it's an exaggerated image intended to make a point. In chapter 8... Uh, Ezekiel was transported in a vision to the temple and he dug a hole in the, in the wall of the temple. He didn't actually dig a hole in the wall of the temple uh, but it was just a vision making a point uh, of what was going on in the temple in those days. In chapter 37 Ezekiel sees the vision of the dry bones coming together tendon on tendon. Uh, it's a picture of God's resurrection power but it wasn't a real occurrence. Uh, and it's probably not a real depiction of how the final resurrection will take place either. But it's a thematic vision. It makes a point of God's great gospel plan. So this vision then is like all the other visions. It's a surrealist picture. It's a picture, exaggerated picture, using visionary language of a true reality. But there are some other kind of curiosities as well uh, in these chapters. First of all, Ezekiel is taken to a high mountain and presumably he's taken to Jerusalem where the, where the uh, temple had always been but Jerusalem isn't actually a high mountain. It's a relatively small mountain uh, as far as mountains go but it's kind of customary for, for in visions for geography to be exaggerated and it's customary for people to go to high mountains as well. Uh, the temple that Ezekiel sees is an, an enormous square. It's 250 metres by 250 metres. And the measurements that Ezekiel receives are by and large only for the layout, kind of the, uh, I don't know what you call that, the plan layout, I guess. There's no, there's no vertical measurements except for one uh, in the part that we read where you get the height of the wall. So the wall is three metres high by three metres wide. 
what's the point of all the measuring then? I think the point of all the measuring is, is to say that it's according to God's precise plan and intention. How do, you, how, do you, how do you show that in a vision? How do you make that point in a vision? You do it by measuring lots of things and being really precise. And that that's the, the kind of the general point is clear when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and you compare that the guy in this chapter has a measuring rod made of reed and the guy in Revelation chapter 21 has a measuring rod made of gold. What's the point? It's the gold standard by which everything is built. There's also no uh, building materials mentioned. There's a few materials mentioned for the altar and a few things like that, but, but pretty much nothing else, which compared to the description of Solomon's temple in Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 6, you get all this list of things, even the, the new temple in Revelation, which is, uh, you know, there's gems and all kinds of things, but here it's, it's pretty stark. Perhaps one of the, uh, the most curious uh, oddities comes with the division of the land in chapter 48. So uh, could you put the, the slide up for the land, Simon? Right. So don't say I don't ever do anything for you. I've got, got two pictures on the one slide. <laughs> and it uh, took quite a bit of effort. Uh, so... So on, on this side you can see how the land was divided by God's instruction in, uh, in numbers uh, and, you know, or you could, and on the uh, other side this is how it's divided when the people return and what you can't quite really see is that it's really just lines. All the land is divided in straight lines across uh, the entire land. Uh, so you know, why the difference? It's because it's a, it's a thematic symbol of what's going on. It's not a real depiction of the land. They weren't to come back and the land would be divided in, uh, in horizontal strips. But it's a kind of a, it's really just a picture that everyone's coming back and everyone's going to be in the land uh, and it's all going to be kind of just and according to God's purpose. Thanks, Simon. So, so all these things in these chapters is really just, just showing us that what God is concerned with, what Ezekiel is concerned with, is theme and symbol. What's the purpose? What's the meaning for the people? The surprising answer is given in, in chapter 43 and verse 10. I don't know if you picked it up when Chris read it, but in chapter 43 and verse 10, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow its regulations. What was the purpose? The purpose was to shame the people. It's an odd purpose in some ways to us, doesn't it seem? But, but the purpose was that it would shame the people for their sin. How does it do that? Well, it shames the people by casting before them a vision of the Old Testament sacrificial system as it ought to have been. This is what the temple should have looked like in the people's day, free from defilement, free from the pollution of sin, free from corrupt priests. But all those things had been in the temple. Remember, God had to destroy it because of that. 
The people uh, who had lived and worshipped uh, in the temple as they heard Ezekiel's description of this, of this visionary temple, they would have been reminded of everything that the temple of their day should have been. It's not that the people were supposed to read this vision and see in every detail some kind of uh, spiritual significance. Rather, it was, a, it was an opportunity for comparison. To say, this is what God had intended and to remember everything that their temple had become. It was an opportunity to reflect on their sin. And when the people came out from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah and they would rebuild the temple, this temple would become a model for, their, for the reconstruction of that temple. Not, a, not an architectural model, but a thematic model, a symbolic model of everything that the, the temple should be, free from sin, free from defilement. What do we do then with the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple? I think in some ways the message for us is the same. We should read these chapters of Ezekiel 40 to 48 and consider the plan and be ashamed. We should consider God's perfect purposes for the world purposes broken by our sin. We should consider God's perfect purposes for his church, churches ravaged by our sin. It should cause us to pause and reflect how we are God's people. We are the temples of God's Holy Spirit and yet so often we're blasé, aren't we, about the pollution of sin but sin matters a great deal. We've seen that all the way through the book, haven't we? Sin jeopardises the presence of God. Sin jeopardises the presence of God in God's church and among God's people. I don't know what it is, but, uh, but for some reason it almost seems sometimes as though we believe that indifference marks out a kind of higher spirituality. As though indifference was the same thing as forgiveness and reconciliation. Someone once told me that they uh, decided to share with the group some of the sins that they were struggling with. Uh, and they, they said, you know, I'm you know, struggling with this, whatever it might be. Uh, and all the people in their group said, well, it's not that bad. You know, just, uh, you know, kind of move on, basically. It was kind of a, a self-help, you know, kind of therapy session. Instead of saying, well, isn't that terrible? But isn't it fantastic that Christ's blood avails for your sin and Christ's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness? Indifference is actually the lowest kind of spirituality. It's an inferior spirituality. But on the other hand, zeal for God's glory and zeal for purity in our own lives and in the lives of others and in God's church, those things are actually the marks of true biblical spirituality. And Ezekiel says to the people in his day and he says to us, consider the outline of the temple and be ashamed and long for the purity of God's presence among God's people. 
So Ezekiel's uh, vision of a temple ought to shame us concerning the sin in our lives and it ought to motivate us to seek the gospel forgiveness and the transforming grace in Jesus Christ. Having said that though, I think far and away the biggest point of these chapters is, is the return of the presence of God among the people. These chapters are a, are a big fat yes to the question of the whole book of Ezekiel which is can God return to dwell among his people? These chapters answer that question in the most extraordinary way. So in chapter 43, which Chris read, we saw uh, Ezekiel getting this vision of the glory of God coming back to the temple. Actually, the whole land, we're told, is full of the glory of God. The same glory which Ezekiel had seen in chapter 1 with, uh, with all those cherubim and the, and the wheels and the expanses and the throne of God, that glory had left the temple in chapter 8 because of the sin among God's people God's glory had left God's dwelling place, God's house. But now God's presence comes back among his people. And that uh, is conveyed, I think, in the most stunning way, not just in chapter 43, but in the very last words of this whole book. If you've got your Bible still open, turn to, to chapter 48 and verse 35. There God is describing to the people of the new city and he says in, in verse 35, chapter 48, the distance all around it will be 18,000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. The name of a place represents what it's known for. What will God's new city which he is establishing what will it be known for? It will be known for the presence of God. It will be known for God being there, not just for a time, for a little while, but forever. The name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. God's presence will be there and it will never be taken away. God's message through Ezekiel is that the presence of God taken away from the temple and ultimately taken away from the world after the fall into sin, that presence is coming back. Not just to the city that Ezekiel saw but to the whole world. It's hard to believe, I think, that Ezekiel's vision is just a dim shadow. But it is the shadow of a greater reality. To live with God uh, is an incredible gift and the amazing thing is that God has not just built a city or a temple to live in but in this New Testament era he's come and made his home with us. First in the person of Jesus who walked our earth and now in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Think of these words from the Gospel of John. If anyone loves me he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. All these words from the end of the book of Matthew and surely I am with you always to the very end of the, end of the age. The work of Jesus on the cross and his death and his resurrection have made, made it possible for God to dwell 
in us individually in a way far more profound than people in the Old Testament ever experienced. There might be times uh, in your life when you feel terribly alone, uh, when there's no one to turn to. You might actually be all alone. You might spend hours of your day with nobody around. You might feel as though you have no friends. But here is the great encouragement. God is always with you. He's always dwelling with you. The house is never empty. God's always there. The error that we make so often, I think, is that we don't think that God is with us unless we feel like God is with us. We talk about the felt presence of God. But that's wrong, actually. In fact, it's when we feel most alone that we need to stop and say to ourselves, I feel like God has deserted me. I feel like I'm alone, but actually that's wrong. I'm not alone because God is with me. I'm in Christ and in Christ God has come to make his home with me. I feel alone, but my feelings are wrong. My feelings are misguided. My feelings are lying to me about the truth of reality. And if God is present with us when we're alone, how much more powerful is God's presence when we're together with God's people, when we're gathered with other Christians? See, I think one of the classic uh, mistakes of evangelical Christianity is that we elevate individual spirituality so high that we neglect corporate kind of spirituality and encouragement. And yet actually the New Testament uh, and the Bible in general is, is kind of magnifies, if you like, the corporate aspect more. If we're alone, God's with us, but when we're together, God is with us in a more powerful way because God is ministering to us through other people, through his spirit in other people. God loves us through other people. God loves other people through us and ministers to other people through his powerful work in us as well. But it's too small a thing for God's glory to be reduced to God dwelling in our hearts. Ultimately, God says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We're so, uh, we, we tend to be so self-absorbed that we're content with God dwelling in us. You know, as long as God's in my heart, well, that's okay. But actually, that's pretty unsatisfactory. God's great plan is for his glory to be manifest over all the world, not just in our hearts. And one day, every eye will see the glory of God descending on God's world. Even those who've rejected God will see God's glory. We need God's glory to spread out all over the world and the reason that we need God's glory to spread out over the whole world becomes clear in Ezekiel chapter 47, which I want to read now. So Ezekiel 47 Verse 1 to 12. 
The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eneglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. The point of Ezekiel's vision of a river flowing from the temple is that God's presence is a revitalising and a refreshing presence. The picture is, for want of a better word, of a kind of a magical river, a river which brings life to a kind of a barren wilderness and to salt seas. This stream, this river begins as a stream and then it multiplies into something so big that no one can cross it, that you can't stand up in. It supports life, it supports trees, fish, birds, animals. The leaves of the trees along its banks won't wither and they'll never fail. They'll always bear fruit every month of the year. And it's because this stream originates from the presence of God that life and healing and restoration flow from it. Again, it's not an actual stream but it's a picture It's like in Psalm 1, what is the person who meditates on God's word like? He's like a stream planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. The imagery is of this revitalising stream coming out from the presence of God and that imagery is taken up in the New Testament. So you might think of John chapter 7 where Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The spirit in people is like a, is like a stream. It's like a stream revitalising and refreshing people. Or these words from Revelation. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. God's presence is a cleansing, transforming, revitalising presence. It's just like an ordinary stream, a real stream, which is a cleansing, transforming and revitalising presence in nature. One day God's presence in all the world will be like a stream spreading out to encompass the whole world, to renew and to rejuvenate God's whole world. Well, even at present, God's work through his spirit is a revitalising and refreshing stream. At the end, everything will be transformed, but at the moment there's little pockets of refreshment and little pockets of revitalisation, little pockets of life springing up as God's spiritual stream wells up in his people. In the 18th century, the presence of God in God's people brought an end to the monstrous tyranny of slavery. Through the presence of God's people in Uh, as missionaries in countries like India, gruesome practices like cannibalism and burning wives uh, with the bodies of their dead husbands, practices like that were brought to an end through the refreshing and revitalising presence of God's people in God's world. God's presence today transforms not only our own lives but it also moderates and refreshes the world around us, sometimes in the most powerful and significant way as people hear the gospel from us and believe, but also in other ways as people's lives are improved and made better through God's presence in us. What is God's presence like? It's like a stream. It's like a fountain of water which refreshes and revitalises Ezekiel is a book full of imagery, full of visions, full of sacraments of the imagination designed to quicken the pulse and set our souls ablaze. And here in these last chapters are still more. And here in this vision of a stream is one more as well. As you walk by the next stream that you walk by, as you take your children for a walk down at the gorge, as you call to mind all the peaceful and serene streams that you've ever encountered and ever visited, all of those are pictures, tastes, dim shadows, of God's great work of revitalising and refreshing his whole world. 
Can God return to dwell among his people? Through the forgiveness and cleansing brought by Jesus, yes, he can. And yes, he already has through his Holy Spirit. And yes, he will in the most profound and extraordinary way when he comes and when God's glory is revealed in all the world. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, these are hard chapters to come to to grips with and to deal with. And Lord, to be honest, maybe as we think about it we might feel a little short-changed. That Ezekiel was privileged to see a vision of the new world which you're creating. That Ezekiel was privileged to see that even in symbol form, to be swept up by your spirit and to catch a glimpse. And Lord, we might feel shortchanged that all we have is words on a page to be read and to be spoken. But Lord, we know that your words are powerful words that your words spoke this world into creation, that your words speak life into cold and lifeless hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we study these words and read these words and meditate on these words, that they would be to our minds and to our imaginations sacraments to quicken the pulse to quicken the heart and set our souls ablaze. Lord, we confess that we need that so much because so often we struggle to keep going. Lord, so often we find ourselves lifeless and cold. Lord, we need so much to catch a glimpse of your glory to catch a glimpse of our sin, to catch a glimpse of your presence already with us now through your Holy Spirit, to catch a glimpse of the great day when you'll live with us forever. And the name of this world and this universe will be God is there. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be in us like a stream bubbling over, giving life and refreshing us. Lord, we pray that your presence with us would be a powerful, transforming presence, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the people that we encounter. And we ask it for the sake of your glory. Amen.